Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope your day's been going well, and I hope you had a great week. Here we are in Minnesota today. We were looking at some of the uh, white stuff on the grass. It didn't stick around for very long, but it was a little tease. It was a a little false start to uh, what appears to be winter with seeing a little bit of snow, which is odd for mid-October, but I don't know. It is what it is, and the fall has been nice, and we're going to have a winter before we know it, but... For those of you who are just joining uh, Faith Radio and maybe you just started listening, uh, again, welcome, and I'm glad that you're you're listening, and I hope you're growing in your faith and coming to a greater knowledge of who you are in Christ. And on this show in the afternoons, it's it's really a a joyful classroom where we learn all kinds of stuff. And my first guest today is Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley. She is an economist, and I always like having her on because I learned so much. And Ann, welcome. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday to you. It wasn't that long ago that few people knew or or ever discussed the Jones Act. Now, I know there's a lot Mm -hmm. of people blinking their eyes right now going, what is the Jones Act? Yes, and this used to be a way at cocktail parties in Washington, D.C., where you could make people walk away from you. You just start talking <laughs> about these <laughs> obscure policies and no one cares, right? Yeah. But it's it's interesting because the Jones Act is, is um, you know, kind of on people's minds right now. And it's basically kind of a, an antiquated maritime law. Um, it, it's, a, it's a little over 100 years old. And basically what it does is regulates shipping uh, via ports. So for a, a ship to dock at a U.S. port, there are certain stipulations that are articulated in the Jones Act. And those include that the, um, the goods traveling between ports, so this is regulating maritime commerce, not mm-hmm. just any ship, but um, cargo ships that are bringing goods to us. They have to have the U.S. ships constructed in the U.S., owned by U.S. citizens, and staffed with U.S. citizens or permanent residents, and they have to be flying a U.S. flag. Okay. And so the reason we're all talking about the Jones Act, because most of the time, you know, that nobody even knows about this, is we just went through, an, her, we're going through hurricane season, and of course we know that Ian and Fiona devastated Puerto Rico and parts of Florida, and so there was a ship that docked in Puerto Rico to give diesel fuel much needed during a hurricane, and basically people were petitioning President Biden to an, allow an exemption to the Jones Act so that we could help people during an emergency. This, by the way, was not the first time this happened. Uh, During Hurricane Maria in 2017, there were petitions for President Trump to make an exception so that a non-U.S. ship could dock in Puerto Rico. This happens to uh, be a problem in Puerto Rico. So that's why people are talking about the Jones Act, because it kind of raised questions about if this policy is not useful in a crisis, when is it useful? You know, what kind of good, what good is it really doing? And so that's why people are talking about it right now. Yeah, and now this act, the Jones Act, uh, goes back to 1920. And this ship that we were talking about that was uh, 
headed to Europe, but it made a diversion to Puerto Rico. And here it is to make a significant contribution to the needs of the people there. And it has diesel fuel. And now, because of the Jones Act, it can't dock and provide the fuel. Right. We need a special permission slip, essentially. And that that occurred. um, But, you know, this is kind of raises a question. Well, why do we have these regulations in the first place? And so... Um, that, you know, there's a lot of economists who are thinking about this and asking questions um, such as, you know, who are the people that benefit from this? And when you kind of start peeling the onion, what you see is this really protects people who are U.S. shipbuilders. Um, they obviously benefit because they are building those ships that are going to qualify. And the other thing that, you know, happens in economics, we like to think about unintended consequences. That's a phrase we use all the time. So, you know, people don't mean for these things to happen. They're unintended, but they are, in fact, real consequences. And one of those things is that in a time of a crisis like this, we can't get people what they need. And and I would say that's a problem if you care about human well-being and human flourishing. The other problem is that it creates these kind of stakeholders or special interest groups. And that's probably why this law has been on the books for so many years, because it benefits a small group of people and the people that pay the price you know, U.S. consumers pay the price in terms of, you know, it's just more expensive for us to get goods that we need because we have a limited ability to get them by ship. It also means more trucks are on the road. So if we're worried about environmental concerns, that could be an unintended consequence of the Jones Act, which is you have to transport more, more, thing, more things using trucks. Um, and that has, you know, certain environmental and just, you know, congestion consequences as well. So, Anne, there's going to be winners and losers, and who are they? Winners and losers, and that's really why I care about this, because I don't want to live in a world where we continually institutionalize the winners and institutionalize the losers. What does that mean? Here, well, it means that by law we're saying, hey, U.S. shipbuilders and merchant mariners and unions that are involved in that industry, you guys benefit from this. And so the law is going to stay on the books because they're the beneficiaries, right? But the costs are the rest of us. The costs are Puerto Ricans who live in the path of hurricanes. They face the consequences of these regulations, and they don't have the political ability to mobilize against them in many cases. Mm -hmm. And there's also another word that I would like you to talk about regarding the Jones Act, and, and Maritime um, Act called cabotage. I don't even know if I said that right. Cabotage. It's, that word sounds sinister. It sounds bad, isn't it? Yeah. I have to look it up. Um, cabotage, because it sounds bad because it sounds like sabotage, which is bad, right? Um, we know that, that, that sabotage is a bad thing. But cabotage is basically just um, the way that we manage commerce between ports within a country. Mm-hmm. So, and really, almost all countries have some cabotage laws. So all countries are doing this. That doesn't make it right or good. Um, but it's laws about what ships can pull into port and undock, you know, dock there and unload goods. And so these, that's what cabotage means. It's just the laws about maritime commerce. Mm-hmm regarding the ships and the ports. So as we look at this uh, story, for example, this um, ship that had diesel fuel, that could have been a, of great assistance. When it really comes down to it, Anne, it sounds like we need permission from the President of the United States to have a ship dock to deliver needed supplies 
during a hurricane. Right. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what the consequences of this regulation are. I don't think that when this was in, initiated over 100 years ago, that was the intention, right? Like, hey, we're going to actually harm Americans in a time of crisis by doing this. And, and I think that with most regulations like this that have these unintended consequences, I think it's pretty easy to give the lawmakers the general benefit of the doubt, right? That they're not, they're not kind of trying to categorically hurt a group of people, but that's ultimately what happens. And, and another example um, that's not the Jones Act, but that is common in the news that we can think of is just rent control, right? So rent control, at least on its face, is a regulation that sounds good because it sounds like, hey, housing prices, um, we want to, to control them because we really care about people being able to find apartments. And of course, again, as Christians who care about the well-being of our friends and neighbors and community members, of course we want that. But, you know, the question of economics is, can we use law or force to make it so? And you can't, because the prices are what they are based on scarcity. I mean, it's just really always that simple. And so if you want apartment prices and housing prices to go down, we need to think about what is limiting the supply of those things. And in many states and counties and cities, it's zoning laws. So zoning laws can make it really difficult for you to have intergenerational dwellings and all these types of things. And so that can make the prices of the rental units go up. So to respond to that by saying, okay, now we're going to come up with a new policy that says you can't charge more than X dollars a month. What that actually does is it it cuts some people out of the market entirely because the landlords need to make their rent, right? So what are they going to do? They're going to say, well, we're going to charge you hidden fees because we have to try to make up our costs. And so if we really want to help people, I think we need to think about what are the constraints, whether it's education or healthcare or housing, all of which are important. We really have to think about the unintended consequences. So that's why I just bring up rent control in this context. I just think it's another very tangible example for most of us of these really terrible unintended consequences that tend to hurt people who are poor or in the case of the Jones Act, they're hurting people who are literally living in the path of a hurricane and desperately need help. How can we stand for a policy that actually makes it difficult for us to help them? I don't think we should do that. I would agree with you, uh, Ann Bradley, but let me ask you, because I want to go back to rent control just because I haven't thought about this in a long time, but obviously the building owners have to not only pay their bills and their taxes, and they don't get uh, forgiveness on any of that, but it does sound loving and kind to create a living environment where people know what their rent is going to be every month and it's going to be fixed. And that's got to be a comfort to some and to many, but why is rent control maybe not a great idea? So rent control isn't a great idea because I think it doesn't. So for two reasons, one, it doesn't deal with the core of the issue. And so I think that's the power of economics. We have to get down to the basic supply and demand. What is either the supply side problem or the demand problem that would lead to a shortage of housing? And because, you know, when when housing, the supply of housing is less than the actual demand, then the price goes up. And so it does sound loving, like you said, to just say, let's use the law to say you can't charge more than X dollars a month, you know, whatever the law decides. But the, the secondary set of problems with this is that it, 
it really isn't dealing with a core problem, like I just said. And so therefore landlords, because they have this asset and they need to profit from it, that is the only motivation they have to put these <laughs> units on the market, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They have to cover their costs. So what we typically see are these kind of backdoor fees, right? Like maybe it's $2,000 to get your key or, you know, or you can see other things like dilapidated buildings that aren't kept up to code that are dangerous if there's a fire because the landlords now don't have the ability to do it. It's Mm -hmm. not that they're evil. It's that they don't have the cash because you've disrupted the market's ability for supply and demand to kind of come together. And so I think that's, that's how we should think about these things. You know, so my question is, all right, in these cities that have these rent controls, what could we do differently that would allow more housing, whether it's apartments or townhouses or condos or any of the above, you know, single family? What is standing in the way of us being able to offer more affordable housing for people? Mm-hmm. I think that's how we address the question. If you have a question for Dr. Ann Bradley, let me know what it is. I have uh, an economist with a PhD to answer your question. And if you don't send in a question, I will ask her, I don't know how I can balance my checkbook, which I haven't done since 10th grade. So 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. You're back. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. I am back with Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley. She is the George and Sally Meyer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director at the Fund for American Studies. She's also a professor and an author. She's a visiting professor at George Mason University and also previously taught at Georgetown University. Her resume goes on and on, but I'm going to stop reading there. All right, Ann, uh, let's talk about inflation. And it's, uh, it's got a grip on the U.S. economy. Even in September, it was uh, 8.2%. And now what is it? Yeah, so it's 8.2%. And this is really concerning to everybody who's looking at this um, because we're wondering what's next. What's coming next, especially, you know, kind of we're headed into winter. We're headed into the holiday season. But more importantly, Bill, we're headed into midterm elections. And so um, what I like least about this conversation uh, you know, kind of the public conversation around this is that it tends to be a fight about politics Mm -hmm. when I think what it actually should be is, look, how do we get the American economy back on course? We've been through a pandemic, which, you know, led to, in my opinion, a lot of really disastrous policy decisions, including shutting down schools for extended periods of time, shutting down businesses for extended periods of time. And we just talked about unintended consequences a moment ago. And I think Look, inflation is an unintended consequence of a lot of those things, not just 
shuttering GDP, really making it hard for people to buy and sell and engage in commerce, but we're spending like crazy. Um, the Federal Reserve, I think I've shared this statistic with you um, before on this show, but I believe something like 80% of the bills in circulation have been printed in the last 26 months. Wow. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a lot. And so we have a monetary policy problem. We have a fiscal spending problem. And right now in Washington, we're kind of debating about semantics, right? So you've, you know, you've been following the debate about whether we're in a recession or not. Of course, we are in the technical definition of a recession. But, you know, if you're the president of the United States or you're running for reelection, um, you know, you don't want to admit that. Uh, So I think, you know, we're not getting a lot of honest dealings, in my opinion, by policymakers in Washington. I think this is just a battle over the election. But at at the end of the day, what I'll say is we have to get it under control. Everybody believes that the Fed is going to increase rates again. Um, And and when those announcements come out, the stock market goes crazy, right, in a bad Mm -hmm. way. Um, And because investors get worried, Um, GDP was down by – 1.6% 1.6% in the first quarter of this year and about point, um, 0.06% in the second quarter. Mm-hmm. So we have real problems. Um, you know, we're not in the seventies yet. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. We don't want to go back to that for a variety of reasons. But when I see what the response is, Bill, that's where I get really concerned. Cause let me just pick on one, one state as an example. I don't know if you, if you saw this, but governor Newsom in California is is um, suggesting that California hand out one thousand dollar inflation relief checks, hmm. right? So this is like a, a kind of like saying, "Hey, I see that you're on fire, <laughs> and I'm going to pour some gasoline on you, and just trust me, it's going to work." So that's just like the worst thing that we can do because it's more state spending, which is going to fuel greater inflation. So the answer here is not let's spend more. Um, We're talking about Social Security payments are going to go up next year as a result of inflation. And so this is this is a problem because it's hard for ordinary Americans to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. Food is more expensive. Shelter is more expensive. Airline tickets are more expensive. Those are really those are important for ordinary people to be able to take care of their families. And the problem is that wages aren't up as much as inflation is up. So if you're, you know, even if you get a raise that you get a 3% raise, but you're dealing with 8.2% inflation, you're still behind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need to, we need to get out of this. Yeah. All right, Ann. my next question uh, comes from uh, Brian and I, either I have no idea who Brian is or it's Brian from my Bible study. And it's most likely <laughs> Brian from my Bible study. Anyway, as a matter of fact, I know it is. Question is, are banks depositing excess funds into the Federal Reserve because it is safe haven and taxpayers are required to pay interest on those funds, even if the amount is well above the minimum? And is that good policy? Yeah, so, I mean, I think this is an important question about how we fix what's going on um, with the Federal Reserve in general and the incentives that banks face. So one of the issues is just, you know, what is the Federal Reserve incentivizing for people to do with their money um, and, you know, with their holdings and what the Federal Reserve then does on the other side of that. And so um, there's one kind of this, I don't know if if Brian was um, 
uh, watching the news earlier this week, but the Nobel Prize in Economics was announced. Um, and there were three economists that were the recipients of those prizes, and they did work on bank runs um, and different types of, of central bank policy that can try to mitigate um, these bank runs. And so that's what they won the Nobel Prize for. Ben Bernanke was one of them. That's a person that most people recognize his name. Uh, and so one of the things that they look at is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, right? And so this is kind of the notion that the FDIC acts as insurance on the reserves that people put um, in the bank, and it provides a safe haven for these banks to then loan out those funds, but not, you know, but have the government essentially back them up uh, so that there aren't bank runs. And so this is, you know, kind of some people praise this, this set of ideas. Some people critique this set of ideas. And I think that we need to be really careful about um, what incentives local banks have and how the Federal Reserve can govern that, because that's really their job, right? Is they're kind of controlling interest rates or they're trying to, they're not in direct control of interest rates, but thinking about vulnerable funds. So um, I'm not sure that the Federal Reserve currently is offering the right set of incentives. I mean, at the end of the day, the supply and the demand for money is like similar to the supply and the demand for any other type of thing. And so the, the, the quantity of money in an economy should be supported by the demand for that money. And when there is a quantity of money that is not supported by the demand for that, that's when you're going to have all these type of problems, you know, some of which I think Brian is getting at in his question. So I'm not sure right now we have the right set of incentives. And frankly, maybe we've just been asking the Fed to do too much. And so it's kind of doing a lot of things, and it's, I'm not sure it's doing them well. And so a singular mandate might be more appropriate for the Federal Reserve than trying to stabilize prices and maximize employment. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. but I like it. I like it. What else is the Federal Reserve trying to do that were, that's problematic? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that we've seen over the past several years, but really I can't blame this all on just covid I think that we've started seeing the Federal Reserve engage in unorthodox monetary policy since the Great Recession. And again, keep it, you know, we've, I think we've kind of talked about this before in other ways, but that a time of crisis when people are afraid is the time when they are most willing to say to the, to the government, you know, do what you need to do mm-hmm. and we'll worry about it later. And I think that's the problem. And so what the Fed has done is engaged in kind of quantitative easing. They've engaged in unorthodox monetary policy, including giving municipal loans out during COVID. So these are things that are unorthodox in the sense that, um, that, that this is kind of new, a new arena for the Federal Reserve. And economists at Texas Tech, Alex Salter, has made a great point about this, which is that this actually politicizes the Fed, right? When it's allowed to start doing more than its very narrow scope, mm-hmm. again, quantitative easing and loans and city loans, it becomes politicized. And that is exactly what a central bank is not supposed to be. So the system of checks and balances in the United States was designed for a purpose, right? And so the Fed is supposed to be independent, not involved in fiscal affairs. We don't want them to be politicized. And I think recently their activities have become more politicized. And they allow, this type of stuff allows the Fed to engage in fiscal policy, mm-hmm. which is not their mandate, right? That's yeah. what Congress is supposed to yeah. do. Yeah. 
Anne, thank you so much. I just got a note saying if Anne didn't win the Nobel Prize, I hope she was at least nominated. Have a <laughs> far have, from it, but have, thank have you. Have a great weekend. <laughs> Dr. Anne Rathbone thank you. Bradley's been my guest. We're gonna take a little break. When we come back, Brian Cluth is gonna talk about pastors and their appreciation. That's all coming up next. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Thanks for being with me today. Here's some things that many Christians don't know. Many Christians don't know that 90% of pastors feel financial pressure. And 50% of pastors make less than $50,000 a year while serving their churches 50 to 60 hours or more a week. And 60% of pastors do not receive retirement, health care, or other employee benefits from their churches. So you can imagine what pastors have gone through, uh, especially in the last couple of years with COVID and more. And because we are in Pastor Appreciation Month, there's never been a better time to step up and make a difference in the life of your pastor. We're going to talk to Brian Cluth today. He is from the National. Uh, he's with the National Association of Evangelicals, launching a "Bless Your Pastor" uh, campaign to help congregations show and share God's love for their pastors in creative and practical ways. So. This has been underway for a while, but Brian, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be on with you and your listeners, Bill. And we just really want to help people think about this important topic that, you know, pastors and church staff need love and encouragement, especially in the light of the last few years. It's been really a difficult couple of years. And right now, uh, national statistics are saying that 42 percent pastors have considered leaving their church, leaving the ministry even, in the past 12 months because of the difficulties of the past few years. So pastors need uh, people's encouragement like never before. Yeah, Brian, that statistic is hard to put your arms around. It's not like they're looking for a different church to work at. They're thinking of leaving the profession altogether. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's not just leaving their church. It's actually saying, you know what? I think I might be done. And, uh, and, and some of this comes, uh, a big part of this comes the last couple of years, they, they were in a situation where they had to make decisions. Are we open or are we not open? Are we closed or, you know, close or open, mask or not mask, social distance or not. And no matter what decision they made, someone didn't like it or several people didn't like it. And people let them know a lot of times with a lot of anger, uh, it was by email or by text or by voicemail or sometimes right in the face of the pastor, letting that pastor know they were upset with the decisions they made and they're going to leave this church and yada, yada, yada. And boy, it was hard. And it didn't, didn't matter what decision they made because there was some, you know, if they made the other decision, then somebody else would have been mad. So it's really been very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, they've, they've weathered a lot in the last couple of years. And so we were talking earlier before we got on the call together, even just having to invent doing online services and counseling online and doing all kinds of things, uh, been tremendous, tremendous challenges, uh, probably the most difficult, certainly in our lifetime, that pastors have ever faced. Mm-hmm. Brian, you have 
been a pastor yourself and God provided through your congregation in a very creative and loving way, um, would you mind telling a piece of that story? Yeah, you bet. Uh, what had happened was I, God called me to be a pastor when I was 45 years old. I was in a different career field, but really sensed God's call. And so I took my family from uh, Wisconsin to Colorado to become a senior pastor. And I took a $70,000 pay cut to uh, follow God's call and God's leading. But I went to a wonderful congregation, Evangelical Free Church congregation, uh, in uh, in Colorado Springs, and what we discovered is that particular congregation, they loved me, my wife, my children, our staff very, very well, and so many people helped us in practical, creative ways that we didn't, in a sense, we didn't miss the $70,000 because many of our needs were met through the care of the congregation. So we had someone that would fix our car and, and um, someone helped my wife garden and some nice people would watch our children or someone would give us a ticket to a sports game or a use of their vacation home, or they just did things for us out of their love for us and out of what they had, their abilities and their possessions. And they shared that with us and it made all the difference in the world. And so that's kind of the, the genesis of, where this movement started was the love I felt. I found out from a lot of other pastors, they had not had that kind of experience. So I wrote a little flyer, 50 ways to bless your pastor and church staff. And and thousands of churches are now sharing that flyer with their congregations, all the families and people are getting excited about, wow, these are things, these are things we can do to help love and bless our pastor and staff. Mm-hmm. Brian, maybe you would talk about why the bless your pastor movement is not only vital for the well-being of the pastors and the church staff, but even for the future of, of churches uh, going forward. Yeah, you know, I would say a thriving pastor leads to a thriving church ministry. You know, uh, the reality is if you're if the person leading you know your the work is not in a good place because they don't feel loved, appreciated, supported, or their needs aren't met, that's going to have consequences for that congregation. Uh, a struggling pastor is going to lead to a struggling church. And so the more you can do to practically and personally, not just leave it to the, to the church budget and the church board, but what individual Christians can do, that's when, there's, that's when it's a real game changer. I mean, give you an example, uh, my, my church, I'm not the pastor, but uh, we have a home group from our church. We meet every Tuesday. And one, uh, during October, November, we decided to, during one of our nights, we would all bring gift cards for our pastor and staff. And so we all brought gift cards and then we had a bunch of, uh, I mean, like financial gift cards, restaurants, things like that. And then we had note cards and we, at the Bible study that night at the home group, we all took turns signing a note card to every staff member, why and how we appreciate, why we appreciated them. And then we took those $500 in gift cards and those and those note, appreciation notes to the pastor uh, at a staff meeting, the pastors and staff, and they felt so loved, so supported, so encouraged. But that was something we just did as a home group, and uh, that's a game changer, feeling that love and that encouragement. You know, Brian, oftentimes the giver doesn't think it's a big deal to do something. <laughs> they don't think, you know, the giver yep. goes, well, I'll, I'll get a gift card, and I'll fill out a card, and I'll give it to the pastor, and and the, the giver doesn't think it's a big deal, but the pastor, uh, they're overwhelmed with a feeling of 
gratitude and they feel so loved and affirmed. Absolutely, Bill. You're you're 100% right. You see, because what they normally get from people is the nasty email. Pastor, you know, church was too cold on Sunday or too hot on Sunday. You didn't sing my favorite songs. You know, you preached too long. You preached too short. You didn't preach well. You missed a reference, you know, whatever. I mean, what they're normally getting are shocks. They're getting they're getting little static shocks all the time. Little, you know, it's like someone's got a little cattle prod <laughs> and they're shocking yeah. their, their pastor. And when they get something the other way, because when they get a note from someone, they're going to typically open it and it's, they're thinking, okay, well, here, what's coming? What's going to come in this note? And all of a sudden they see a gift card and they see a note, pastor, I love you, appreciate you, believe in you, praying for you. Thank you for what you're doing. Many pastors will weep. Mm. A simple note and a gift card. I, I talked to a pastor a while back. He and his wife had not gone on a date night to a restaurant for over a year because they couldn't afford it. Mm. He said, Brian, he said, we didn't have the money to go on a date. He said, all we did last year was we did two Starbucks dates because by the time we paid the babysitters, all we had money left for was a Starbucks. Uh, and he said, you know what it would mean to me if somebody would get me a restaurant gift card and then someone we trusted watched our kids? He said, that would have made, that would have been the highlight of our entire year. That, that gift card and those, someone watching our kids would have made all the difference in the world in my, in my family and in my marriage. But he said it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And so, you know, we struggle on. A lot of pastors suffer in silence because who are they going to tell? What can they say to anybody? Yeah. You know, it's just going to sound awkward and strange to say, hey, you know, men and women, hey, I'm, I'm hurting here. We're struggling here. You can't say anything. And so that's why I, I'm a voice for the voiceless. Nice. You know, you feel, well, pastors aren't voiceless. No, they are voiceless on these topics. Mm-hmm. So that's why I go on the air. My wife and I, we, we've covered 25,000 miles, 40 states, and 125 cities in the last year, going on the airwaves and doing pastor appreciation events uh, just to, you know, bless pastors, but to let Christians know, you know, God wants them to step up and show and share God's love for their pastor and staff. And, and we have an easy as one, two, three way to make it happen. That's the beautiful thing is we've got everything you need, and it's simple. Everyone listening to us right now can get the ball rolling with free materials, and they can be an answer to prayer. Uh, they can be, you know, life-giving, life-saving to their pastor just by them going to blessyourpastor.org and getting the free materials for their church. Okay, blessyourpastor.org. We're also at My Faith Radio uh, here, Brian, doing because it's Pastor Appreciation Month. If you go to myfaithradio.com, you can uh, get a card and a coffee gift card sent to your pastor. So we're, we're doing yeah, everything great. we yeah, can wonderful. as well. So let's talk yeah, about exactly. easy as one, two, three. Yeah, it's, it is easy as one, two, three. And what it is, people go to easy as, uh, the blessyourpastor.org website, and there's a simple PDF they're going to get. They can have access to it's in English and it's in Spanish. And uh, they can go there and they'll get a PDF and it explains the one, two, three program and the, the three steps. We want your church to do is one is there's a fifty a list of fifty ways to bless your pastor and staff. We want you to email or hand out that flyer to every family in the church. So that's step one. Step two: have the leaders uh, take up an appreciation offering that gets shared the pastor and staff. And three: honor and pray for them publicly. Just you know, honor them some way in a, in a 
typically in the service uh, on a Sunday morning, do that. And when your church says one, two, three, this is a really fun part. We will, you let us know, you let us know that that happened, and then we will send your pastor a $200 gift card. We have a million dollars in grant funds to send out these cards, and we want your pastor to get this $200 gift card, and we will send your pastor and all the, any pastors on your staff a scholarship to a weekend to remember marriage retreat, a $350 scholarship to a weekend to remember marriage retreat. So everyone listening to us right now, you, when you go to blessyourpastor.org, you will help your pastor get a $200 gift card, a $350 marriage retreat scholarship, and you will help empower all the families in your church with the free materials to also come up with ways to bless uh, and, and and love and care for their pastors and staff. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. I mean, what an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So, so a pastor, if the one, two, three, easy one, two, three steps all take place, uh, the pastor w- will get a $200 gift card. That's an amazingly generous offer. Brian Kluth is my guest. We'll take a little break and we'll be right back with more. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. It's all about blessing pastors this month, and I'm talking to Brian Kluth, and he is Bless Your Pastor campaign. It's an incredible initiative, and they are funded by a, a one million uh, three-year grant, and they have uh, um, lots of materials available and resources, and you can learn about them at blessyourpastor.org. Brian, I hope I said that right. Yep. Good, That's good. Right. Now, I'm very intrigued by the 50 ways you can bless your pastor. Can you tease us with some more besides the obvious, which are gift cards? Yeah, yeah, gift cards is a, is a, is a guaranteed way, like That's I winner. mentioned earlier in the program. Uh, we, uh, we did that as a Bible study group, home group, and that was great. But anybody listening to us can just you know go through the going through the grocery line or the gas station, you look to the right or left and there's a gift card there. It could be Home Depot, Lowe's or restaurant, Starbucks, you know, anything and just get a gift card and, and put a little note with it and give it to your pastor and I guarantee they'll feel blessed. Another thing in the 50 ways is how to pray for your pastor. Uh, most people would have no idea how to pray for your pastor, but I had a woman in my church and she said, Pastor, I pray for you every single day and I want to know how to pray for you. And she and I worked together. Her name was Pat Hardiman, and, and and Pat and I came up with a list of praying for my family, praying for my children, praying for my marriage, praying for my preaching, praying for my leadership, praying for my friendships, uh, praying for my t- relationship with God. Uh, but I, it was a delight to know that I had that I had people like Pat praying very specifically for me because being a pastor is difficult. I mean, you're in spiritual warfare, you're in a battle, and when you know you have people upholding you in prayer and support, you can go through that battle. 
when you and, and you know when you when those prayers are real and you know they're by real people. So that's a big thing. Another thing is, what are you good at? You know, I tell people like, you know, a, a guy who liked working in cars, uh, and he came to me one day and he's uh, we were doing the bless your pastor fifty ways list, and he says, well, I don't have a lot of money, but he said um, I love changing oils on car and changing oil on cars and doing brakes. And he said, would it be okay if I got hold of the five staff members and told them that whenever they were ready to have their oil chains or the brakes worked on just to call me. <laughs> I said, if you would do that, they would think they died and went to heaven. Oh, my. <laughs> I said, for you to do that. You know, another pastor said, boy, if I just had someone to cut my grass, he said, I'm working 70 hours a week. He said, there, there was just a teenager that would, you know, a parent would send them over to my house to cut my grass. He said, do you know what that would mean to me? Just to have that support or watch or anything, you know, if they're a young family, watch their kids or I had another uh, person, they had a vacation home, and this is the pastor telling me the story. And every January 1st, this person called him and said, hey, what nine days do you want my vacation home this year? Every January 1st, the guy would call. It was a vacation home in the mountains. So they gave him two weekends, you know, two weekends in the week, nine days. And and so this pastor would pick out the nine days, and then the guy would say, well, then my family will pick, we'll work with the other, you know, other, other weeks of the year. And the guy said, this pastor said, he said, I got that call January 1st every year for 25 years. Oh, my. He said, every year my family had a vacation. Our greatest memories were in that vacation home. And he wept as he was talking to me. He said, Brian, he said, without that phone call, I could have never afforded a vacation. I could have never gone on vacations. It was that phone call that made all the difference. And that was just one Christian family calling there, and he was, he was an associate pastor, calling an associate pastor and saying, what days do you want the vacation home this year? Just, yeah, again, what do you have? What are skills do you have? What abilities? I'm traveling for 70 days. I called my pastor and said, do you want my SUV? And uh, we're in a motorhome traveling. And he said, I would love it. He said, I got an old clunker. Well, he's driving my SUV for 70 days. Now, I don't know if I'm going to get it back when I get home, but... <laughs> <laughs> but he's got it for 70 days. Yeah. That's what, that's what we're talking about. Is this really practical, real, you know, First Thessalonians 5.12 verse says, show every individual Christian, show your deep appreciation for those who minister among you. Show it. And the 50 ways list will help every listener. Every listener, you will find something on that list that you can do to bless your pastor and any of the staff members at your church, just go to blessyourpastor.org, get the free one, two, three materials that includes the 50 list, 50 ways list. And then when you do those things, we'll bless your pastor with a $200 gift card and a $350 marriage retreat scholarship. So the pastor and the spouse and any of the pastors and spouses on the staff can get away for a weekend uh, to remember marriage retreat. And that would be such a wonderful blessing and everybody listening right now can be part of the answer. They can be part of the solution to bless pastors. Brian, what, what I love about the, the guy who offered his vacation home was he was basically giving the associate pastor the first right of refusal. You pick your nine days. Our family will work around you. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, for 25 years. Yeah. 25 years. Yeah, yeah. there's people that have time. Share. I, I had a... A guy one time I was trying to get to Latin America for for some for for 
for a variety of reasons. And the guy said, hey, I'll give you frequent fire points. Because I was praying about going, but I said, I can't afford the trip. The guy said, don't worry, I've got frequent fire points. I'll give you frequent fire points. You go on that trip to South America. That, mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things where we just share what, the Bible says, share all good things with those who instruct you, Galatians in 6 6. So, what's good in your life? Your abilities, your skills, your possessions, your resources. What's good in your life? Share them. Share mm-hmm. them with pastor and associate pastors and staff. Bless them. Oh my goodness, folks! You can you have no idea what this can mean. I I've had pastors say they were literally on the ropes of quitting, and then this bless your pastor thing happened, and it changed everything. And instead of quitting, they re-engaged and they're happier than they've ever been in ministry because they know they're loved and supported. Wow! And what a difference that makes. When yeah, I when absolutely. I when I see the statistic, Brian, that ninety percent of pastors feel financial pressure, you certainly want pastors to keep the main thing the main thing and not having to be so worried about finances. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And again, like when I took that $70,000 pay cut, I, at first I thought, how's this going to work? But it worked fine because people helped us. And so a lot of costs that we normally would have to pay for ourselves, people were blessing us again, like a mechanic or someone cutting the grass or watching the kids or my when my wife had cancer for eight years, people would give us gift cards so that she didn't have to cook and clean up. So we would pick up the kids from grade school, middle school, and we would go to, you know, Taco Bell or, you know, McDonald's or Olive Garden with a bunch of gift cards and she, we could eat as a family and then she could come home and rest after her cancer treatments. So, uh, yeah, all kinds of things that people can do to just be creative and love your, love your pastor and staff. That's beautiful. I bet there is something from Scripture that demonstrates how we as a body of believers can come together and support our pastors. Yeah, we mentioned a few of them already. First Thessalonians 5.12, show, that doesn't say say, it says show the deep appreciation for those who minister among you. Galatians 6.6 6, uh, says, um, uh, says we're to share all good things. Uh, and there's a, there's a bunch of one another scriptures. I know of one pastor, uh, he was burdened with student loans and nobody in his leadership didn't know that he was, he, they didn't pay him a lot, but he had all kinds of student loans. And when the, when the leader found out about it, he, he said to the pastor, you can't afford those student loans. And he said to the guy, the pastor, he said, why don't you tell us when we were candidating you about your student loans? He said, well, you never asked me, so I wasn't going to tell you. And he goes, well, you can't afford student loans on the little we pay you. And the, and the leader said, you know what, we're going to do something. And they took up, this is a really cool story. They took up an appreciation offering for that pastor, and they paid off a student loan. Oh, wow. Wow. Can you, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the love that that pastor and spouse felt mm-hmm. when this burden of years, years and years and years of student loans was on them, on their little paycheck? And then the church families rallied around them. And then, this is like in North Dakota, I think, this is where this happened. In North Dakota, do you, do you think they were endeared to those families when that happened? Yeah. And, and so, but, but the reality was that there were people in that congregation that had wealth. But they didn't, once they knew there was a need, then they stepped up and met the need. Wouldn't that be amazing if some, someone listening to us right now went and talked, if they have a younger pastor, went and talked to him and said, hey, do you have any student loans? And then if they mobilize the church to just get, raise up an offering and pay it off? Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Boy. So this tour you've been That'd on be and the, all the traveling yeah. you've done promoting this, I know we only have a couple minutes left, 
But I bet there's another yeah. really good story in there somewhere that you could share. <laughs> You're laughing oh, because so there's many, so, many. so many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been seven months on the road over the last two years, not all at once. We've split it up. Um, well, I think the one, I, I, I love the story of a, a pastor that uh, was struggling a bit, and then his family did the the one, two, three materials. He didn't know what was happening. You know, you can't ask the pastor to plan this. This has got to be planned by the by the church leaders and the office staff. But anyway, he got the he got the information, or he got they they blessed him. They took up the offering. You know, and, and he said, Brian, when that fifty ways flyer got handed out, he said it it was a generosity wildfire broke out in my church. Mm. He said, I was getting loved for months and the next year, and my wife and my children, we felt more love in that following year than we had in years and years of ministry. He said, it was a wildfire of love, and it all started with that little 50 ways list that got given to every family in the church, and that's what we want to do. And then the other really, it's a sad story, but an important one, is the pastor says, oh, I don't, I don't like Pastor Appreciation Month, and I said, why is that? He said, because... I wait all month, and he says, then November 1st comes, and then I realize no one's going to do anything. And year after year, I wait, and I wonder, is this the year? And so, folks, if you're listening to us right now, and you're, you're like, well, our church doesn't do anything to honor your pastor, well, you, that's a problem. You can fix it. You don't have to have the saddest day of your pastor's life be November 1st when he realized your church didn't do anything again. You can go to blessyourpastor.org and do this. And the great thing is our materials, they can be used in October, November, or December. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be October, but you can get the materials now and get the ball rolling. You can do it at Thanksgiving. You can do it at Christmas. That's awesome. But go to blessyourpastor.org and get Th- the ball rolling. Thank you so much, Brian, for being on the show. It's a delight to connect with you again. Hey, thanks, Bill. God bless you, you and your listeners. Yeah, we'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.